0: We are in Sefer Yehoshua, the book of Joshua. Sefer is the Hebrew word for book. Yehoshua, Joshua. And tonight we're going to cross over from part one of this rite of passage, the first four chapters. So we'll do chapter four at the end of part one. And we're going to cross into part two, which is chapters five through 12. And we're calling that perseverance. This is where the battles begin and and the military strategy and fight starts to get really exciting. But uh, Sunday, we talked about this. We looked at chapter three, the crossing of the Jordan River. And I didn't get any feedback, zero radio silence. I was asked today, did anybody say anything about the teaching on Sunday? And, and I said, no, which, which usually tells me one of three things. Either A, lunch was just way too good and it was completely forgotten. B, uh, everybody was in absolute full lockstep agreement. Or C, someone away going, I'm gonna have to think about this for a while. And, and I, hope it's, I hope it's one of the second two. And I hope you are thinking about it. Uh, as I said Sunday, we all come from uh, unique places. Being in an independent Bible teaching fellowship, you really don't know what someone's background is, where they've come from, I know mine. <laughs> and, but a lot of yours I don't, and so as we talk about, especially when we get into talking about the Holy Spirit, supernatural work of God, God's supernatural work today, as in the first century, as in 3,500 years ago with the people of Israel, then, especially in Christian circles, there tends to be a lot of questions and, and disagreements even on what is the impact of the work of God today and, and how does he move supernaturally? Uh, I understand that. My hope as we go through Joshua is to, A, look at the historical reality of the book what really, literally, actually happened. But also remember, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's the first of the books of prophecy, the first of the Nevi'im. And so it is a book of prophecy, which means it's intended not only as a history, but also a prophetic picture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, for us here at the end of the ages. So we should be looking at Yehoshua both as a man 3,500 years ago and as another man 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, Yehoshua Hamashiach, Jesus Christ. We should be taking these things and applying them to our lives. And so we've been looking at this this whole picture of the children of Israel as a picture of someone coming into faith, even today, someone coming into Christian faith and coming out of the bondage of sin and and to the promises of God, but then wandering in the wilderness of of uncertainty and, and after having crossed the Red Sea, right, which Paul says is a picture of baptism, Crossing the Red Sea, but a lot of uncertainty, unfortunately, even after that sometimes in the wilderness, and then you come to the Jordan River, which I said very clearly on Sunday is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second baptism. If the Red Sea is a baptism, as Paul describes it, then you've got a second crossing, and so we made that parallel, that picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and coming into the land of promise, and remember, the promised land. Canaan's land is not heaven, it is our life now, it's life in Christ, it's what Redpath called the victorious Christian life. So that's the picture that we're working off and thinking through, that's the application of the historical interpretation of this book. Now again, they crossed the Jordan River in chapter three, we're gonna pick up in chapter four in just a moment here tonight, but I wanna redress something from a historical perspective. And that is this, that the supernatural hand of the Lord in in blocking the river, in stopping up the Jordan so that the children of Israel could cross over has been cast into doubt by, by many Bible critics. Those who don't want to believe in a supernatural God will start to try to undermine it. And they will say things like this. In 1267 AD, an earthquake stopped up the Jordan for 10 hours. Now, we know that this happened. So there's an historical account outside of Scripture of the Jordan stopping 10 hours long because of an earthquake. So there are those who would say, it wasn't the hand of God, it was an earthquake, just like in 1267. Again, it happened in 1906. The Jordan River stopped because of an earthquake and the the banks flooding in, coming in, and the dirt stopping it up until they could move the banks and get the water flowing again. In 1927, it happened a third time, and that last time the river was blocked for 21 hours. People say, so you could get two and a half million, three million people across a river in 21 hours if the whole thing was blocked, so maybe not so supernatural after all. A few considerations from the biblical perspective and the way the Bible tells it. First off, if it was an earthquake, and I'm not conceding that it was at all because I don't believe that it was, but let's, let's give the critic a moment. If it was an earthquake, the timing would be amazing because this earthquake would have to have happened the moment, the precise moment the priests dipped their feet into the Jordan River, the water stopped. So the timing, wow, wow, how they, what a coincidence, right? Chapter three, verse 15 says, when their feet hit the river, the water Instantly stopped. And then it would have to resume the exact moment the last foot of the last priest came out of the water. Here it comes. Wow. Again, amazing timing. Secondly, they knew this was the plan of God before they set foot in the water or they never would have set foot in the rushing, raging, mile-wide flood stage Jordan. It makes no sense for the priests to pick up the Ark of the Covenant, their most precious uh, centerpiece to take that and walk out into this raging torrent would be utter foolishness. But God said, "I got you. I need you to do this." And so, by faith, they stepped out in it. They did not go foolishly tripping tra with this this important artifact of theirs, unless it was by faith in the word of God already spoken. So again, according to the scriptures, God said ahead of time, this is what's gonna happen. This is what I need you to do. And by faith, they did it. And then he showed them his faithfulness. That's the wonderful thing about prophecy. It's really hard to deny when God says something here and it happens here. This is like an immediate prophecy. I'm gonna do this and and within three days, it happened. I'm snapping a lot tonight. I'm not sure why. It may happen more. But so they had faith in his word. He told them ahead of time, and then he did it. Thirdly, none of the other historical events that I listed to you happened when what chapter three tells us, the Jordan overflows all its banks in the days of the harvest. That is during flood stage. These other events of the Jordan River being blocked because of an earthquake, it was not at flood stage. It was at normal stage of the river where it was nowhere near a mile wide of rushing water. So there's a complete apples and oranges in comparison. Uh, furthermore, the, the third chapter, verse 16 of Joshua, tells us that the waters stood and rose up in a heap. And the phrase is quite literally, and it's used twice, one heap, that is, Ned Ahad, one heap which means a mound or a wall of water. This does not describe a dam of collapsed earth, but a wall of sheer water. Now that's a description of something impossible, something miraculous, not a natural event, a supernatural event. And again, this is how the Bible describes what happened. Finally, it says in verse 17, and you can't explain this any way, shape, or form, that the priest who carried the ark stood firm on dry ground. Even if there was an earthquake and the water stopped, they would not be standing on dry ground. I've told you, I've stood in the Jordan with the waters flowing and my feet sink about six inches into the mud and muck. So getting out of there, very first time I I went into the Jordan was on the Pastor Fam Tour, Cheryl and I did back in 2004. I went into the Jordan wearing flip-flops. I came out without flip-flops because of the thick, muddy water that is at the base of that river, if an earthquake happened and the water stopped and they walked out into it, they'd be walking and slogging through thick mud. But they stood on dry ground. So when you listen to the critics or you hear the critics recognize they are not doing fair comparison, they're not looking at what the Bible literally actually describes as having happened. A natural explanation for the parting of the Jordan River is really, really hard to believe. You know why I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because a natural explanation for what I've seen God do in the last 58 years of my life is really hard to believe. A natural explanation. I have seen too much. I've seen God move in ways that cannot be explained any way other than super natural. By the way, let's just make this easy. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. After that, anything at all should be easy. Don't you think? I mean, if he created heaven and earth, stopping a stream is not a big deal. Parting a sea is a no-brainer. All of the grand, miraculous moves of the hand of God by supernatural means, it just means more than natural, beyond natural. And when he created the natural world and has the power over the natural world, why why is it that we have trouble accepting a supernatural work of God? Even today. Why don't we believe that? Now, I, I get it. Religious sensationalism and emotionalism has messed a lot of people up. And so when they talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people, and I did for years of my life, a lot of people go to the place of, oh yeah, that's, I don't want to be part of that wackiness. And they're not talking about the supernatural work of God. They're talking about the weirdness of Christians who, who take it out of context, take it too far, do weird things, bark, laugh, holy laughter, jump around, are glued to the wall, whatever. Stuff that is not mentioned in Scripture as a work of God And so it gets all kind of convoluted by emotionalism and and sensationalism. But you know what? If you can just set that aside, in fact, it's such a good, a good standard. Stop looking at other Christians and just look at the Word of God. Stop looking at other people and just look at Jesus. You're not gonna have any problem with any of this. If I look at others, that's where I get tripped up, that's where I get confused. John chapter 3, verse 31, John the Baptist said very clearly, he who comes from above is above all, speaking of Jesus. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that, he testifies, Jesus. And no one receives his testimony. That's almost like a, a, a query, a question. No one receives his testimony. He's the only one who has a legit testimony, And then John the Baptist says, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Anyone who receives the testimony of Jesus understands God is legitimate, God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God and he, Jesus, listen, he, Jesus, gives the spirit without measure. That's what the Bible says about the gifting and the giving of the Holy Spirit without measure. My friends, that is supernatural. As much as God promised in Joel 2.28, repeated by Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.17, to pour forth of his spirit on all flesh, and I compare this, and I think it's legitimate to do so, to the flood stage of the Jordan at harvest. A limitless flow without measure. Think about this. God doesn't limit the flow. We do that just fine on our own. God gives his spirit without measure. We're like showerhead flow restrictors that in my opinion should be banned. I hate those things. You put in a new showerhead and it's like the Elephant 2500, you know? And you're ready to really get that flow and you turn it on it goes, chico chico because they stuck a piece of plastic in there because of the federal regulators. I'll tell you what, I'm ready to fight the government just on that. (laughs) But we do that with our spirit, with our faith. We we, we become flow regulators. And we cut down on the We quench the spirit because we don't want to believe. Listen, again, turn your eyes away from anything's Christian, anything Christians do that, that is cessationism on the one hand and, and, and sensationalism on the other hand. Let that go, man. Look at the scriptures. What does Jesus teach? What does he promise? What does he say? And what do we see taking place in the Bible? Those supernatural things are for us today, but a lack of faith is a flow restrictor. Do not quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians five nineteen says. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is, as Jake was saying, good. Hold on to what is truly good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's very simple. It's not difficult to do. With the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, there is to be careful examination, holding fast, and an abstinence from evil. So, with that in mind, we're in the land. And when you come into the land, when you move through the Jordan, now you're in the promises of God. Guess what? The fight is on. The fight is on. Israel is there but they're gonna to have to fight for the promises now, and that is part of our Christian life, it's part of our sanctification, as you'll see tonight. So, I'm gonna give you several things to jot down just to kind of outline our way through chapters four and five. We're gonna try and get through two chapters tonight. And the Lord gives a necessary element for perseverance as we start to come out of this, the beginning section of passage into the land and now perseverance to take the land The Lord gives a necessary element. The very first thing to jot down is what I would call rocks of remembrance. Rocks of remembrance. One of the first things we need to do to persevere in a victorious Christian life is remember. Remember what he's already done. Chapter four, verse one. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. And this explains chapter three, verse 12. So look back there. In the middle of all this, Joshua said, now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe but he doesn't say why. That's not explained in chapter three. We don't know until we come to chapter four. The reason why 12 men had been set apart is these 12 guys are going to be stone bearers. They're going to go back in after everybody has crossed, go back to where the priests are still standing, grab a huge stone, hoist it to your shoulder, and carry it to the place of lodging. So they're set apart before the crossing without explanation. Sometimes God does that. He sets us apart and doesn't tell us why. He says, Grace, for example, I need you back in in Washington in the Pacific Northwest. Why, Lord? I'll tell you. It's on an as-needs-to-know basis, right? How often has God done that in your life where you have been led to do something, go somewhere, but you're like, but I know I should be doing this. I know I'm supposed to be doing this. By the way, how do you know? Anyway, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I don't know why. Let the Lord tell you. He'll tell you in his time. In chapter three, all they knew was 12 guys had to be set apart. Now we know why in chapter four. Remember this, we've talked about this many times. Faith is not knowing what God is doing. Faith is trusting who he is. I trust him. I don't always know what he's up to. In fact, I rarely know what he's up to until he starts to do it. But I trust him, and I know him. So like stepping into the rushing Jordan before the waters are cut off, because he said it's all right, now I need 12 guys set apart. For what, I'll let you know. Okay, but now he says to them, I want you to remember 12 men, go get 12 stones. Take them to the place of lodging. Keep going. So Joshua called the 12 men, verse four, whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. 12 tribes, 12 men, 12 stones. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you, then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever." Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up the 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel and they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there as a memorial. These are memorial stones. Pick up the stones, set them down in the lodging place. They're gonna stay there. They will remain there as a memorial. The word is zikaron. Zikaron, which means a remembrance. These are rocks of remembrance. Rocks of remembrance, memorial stones. Do you know that the Library of Congress, if you were to lay them all out end to end, has 838 miles of bookshelves? That's a lot of books. In fact, those bookshelves in the Library of Congress contain 167 million items. That includes 39 million books, And yet the human brain is capable of storing way more than that. It's pretty stunning when you start to look at at the brain. The the cerebral cortex alone has 125 trillion synapses. Each synapse is able to hold 4.7 bits of info, which equates to a trillion bytes. That's a terabyte. Our memory capacity We're told by studies, and I don't know how they figure this stuff out, my brain's not big enough, but apparently it's bigger than I thought because our memory capacity is 2.5 petabytes, which, Jake, it's not finger food. (laughs) Petabytes are the equivalent of 2,050 terabytes. Okay, so our memory capacity is 2.5 petabytes and a petabyte, 2,050 trillion bytes times two, point five. That's how much our memory capacity is. And yet what's really funny to me is with all that capacity in our brains, we forget 92% of what we take in. It's there, we just can't access it. They say there are two reasons that we lose memory. The first one is aging. The second one is, I, I can't remember, but it's, it's not a capacity problem. It's an access problem. Our brains can hold it, we just don't know how to find the files. We don't know how to get there, and so we have calendars, and we have phones with notifications, and watches that ping when we misplace our phones. It's the entire reason I got Cheryl an Apple Watch was because her phone was constantly lost, now it's not. It pings all the time. We have locator apps on, for our devices and for our laptops. Lose a laptop, you, you ping your app on your phone, you can find it, you know. We have Air Tags for lost items. We set up memorials. Why do we do all of this? To access our memory. And that's what these stones are about, to access memory. What's really interesting about memorials is they access memory that isn't even necessarily yours. Right? The Iwo Jima Memorial accesses a memory of a victory on a South Sea island that was hard fought. I wasn't there, you weren't there, we didn't see it happen, but if you see the Iwo Jima Memorial, you have a sense of, oh, yes, and a memory comes to you. A, a memorial uh, comes to you. God has given the church two memorials, two what I would call rocks of remembrance, or, or what we could call a, a stack, an altar of remembrance, he's given us first off baptism. As a, as a physical memorial of something, baptism. And it's a very personal memorial because it's a declaration of his righteousness in your life. It's not a declaration of even your goodness or your righteousness. It's a declaration of his because you go into the water passively, laid into the water by another person. You're washed by the water, although you know many of us, after we've been baptized, go home and shower off, especially when we used to baptize in the pond. But you go in as this, this picture of, of a washing, and it's a picture of a far greater miracle that has happened spiritually where God has washed us clean. You know this, and now, once you've been baptized, the beauty of it is you have an anchor point you have a, a rock of remembrance, a memory stone that you look back to, oh, I know, I remember, I was 10 years old. My dad baptized me in our family pool on, on a sunny Sunday afternoon in the spring and I'll never forget it. And my memory has, has shifted and changed over the years with that. In fact, it's interesting, the older I get, the more vivid is my memory of what I really intended as a kid when I was baptized But I remember that. I remember the first time I was baptized in the Jordan River. And yeah, yeah, I was in addition. I mean, I'm a man of multiple baptisms and we can talk about that another time. Someone's theology is gonna be blown by that. But I remember being baptized in the Jordan. And what, what a profound moment that was. It's a memory stone, and there are many memory stones in our lives, but but baptism's a big one. Colossians 3, verse three says, you have died. Remember, Romans six says, you're buried with him in baptism, and you rise with him to walk in a new life. That's what it portrays for us. Colossians 3, three, you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. It's one of my favorite verses. My life, my real life, my eternal life, is hidden with Christ. It's tucked away with the Lord. Kind of like saying, you know, I'm already seated in the heavenly places. There's something spiritual beyond even what my eyes can see. But I remember when I was baptized. I have a memory stone of a moment of faith in God's righteousness, in his righteous cleansing. By the way, remember that the Jordan River Crossing is the exact same place where Jesus was both baptized and where he had his apostles do the baptizing. It wasn't just John the Baptist who was baptizing. Jesus and his apostles baptized. Jesus didn't, but he had his boys do it, which I think was probably wise. Or people would have said, well, I was baptized by Jesus, so it counts more. But he, he was doing the baptizing in the same place. This place is called bet John 1, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, bet where John was baptizing, and Bet-Abarah means house of the passage because John baptized at the house of the passage, Joshua chapter three, right where Israel crossed. That's where the baptizing was taking place. How'd they know where it was? Rocks of remembrance. No, I don't know that the rocks of remembrance that were set up were still there at the time of John the Baptist, some 1,500 years later but they were there long enough for it to be set in the minds and the memories of the Jewish people, this is where we crossed into the land of promise. Baptism is a picture, it is a rock of remembrance for you to know when you crossed into the land of promise or into the promise of God. The second rock of remembrance that we have is communion, which we just did tonight. And some think we do it too much at the bridge, I can't get enough. And it's because it reminds, every time I come to the table, I am reminded. I'm reminded, and I also, by the way, make proclamation. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He quotes Jesus twice saying, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. Pause in your life, stop what you're doing, come to the table, take the bread, take the wine, and remember me, which is what it's for. But Paul adds to that, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, that's what a rock of remembrance does. Not only do you remember, but you make proclamation. So these rocks, these 12 stones stacked up at Gilgal, that's that's where it's gonna be, stacked up there at Gilgal, the place of their lodging. Every time anyone saw them, they would be drawn both to remembrance, but also to proclamation of what God did. Supernaturally, heaping up the waters so that they could walk across on dry ground, just as he supernaturally parted the sea, just as he supernaturally brought the children of Israel out of their bondage of slavery. And all of these actions, these are memorial stones to look back and remember. I think it's marvelous because God's memorials are not difficult. He didn't give us these complex, uh, deep thinking Uh, multifaceted ways of remembering. No, he simply gave us water, bread, wine, and rocks. How basic can you get? Water, bread, wine, and river rocks. And God says, I want you to use these for memorial. Now again, the location of the memorial stones, where they're gonna carry those stones is Gilgal. Get this, eight miles out from the Jordan. (laughs) It's not right there on the shore. They're gonna walk eight miles, stones on their shoulders to the place, set them up. Gilgal is going to be a hugely significant place for the Israelites, especially early on. You'll hear the name Gilgal used many times. It's where Saul is gonna be anointed as king. It's one of the three cities of of Samuel the prophet as he made his treks around the land. He would come to Gilgal as one of three major cities. It's the place that after David fled from Absalom, when he crossed the Jordan and was on the other side, fleeing for his life, him and, 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 his, and his ruling and his household. After Absalom was killed, when David came back, he first came to Gilgal. And the people recognized him as king once again at this location, Gilgal. This is very important to the Jewish people. This is the first lodging in the promised land. First camp, verse nine. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing and they are there to this day. For the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And when all the people had finished crossing the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. This is interesting. This is not a memorial that was commanded. God didn't tell Joshua, at least based on the scriptures, unless he told him on the side and we don't get to hear this. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us God told Joshua, make a second memorial in the Jordan itself, there on the dry ground while, while the water is heaped up. But Joshua did this anyway, a second memorial. The Bible doesn't give justification for it. It, it, it doesn't argue the point. It just tells us that he did this. And, and it tells me, you know, it's cool to add memorials. It's fine, there are things we do in our lives to remember Jesus, to think about the Lord. There are little memory stones and rocks of remembrance that we can set up, and I think that's great. Just don't worship them. Just don't allow them to become more important than the one that we're remembering. But Joshua set these up, the second memorial, and I had to think about this a little bit. Why did he do this? Why set them in the river? 12 stones from the Jordan set up at Gilgal, and now 12 stones in the Jordan, and once the priest came out and the water returned, who's gonna see them? It's kind of a foolish undertaking, isn't it? Actually, anytime the waters abated, they would be seen. Whenever the river was not at flood stage, you would see these 12 stones set up there which would ultimately be more on the bank than necessarily right in the very center, but as the water would abate, or even more so. In times of drought, those stones are there. And I think that in our lives, we need rocks of remembrance in times of drought. Sometimes when the river's not flowing, when we are not experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit. When we don't feel God moving in our lives and it's dry and I'm thirsty and I'm uncertain, we need rocks of remembrance of the supernatural work of God from before. Let me read this to you. This is one of my absolute favorite psalms and I wanna read you the whole thing. Just listen to the psalmist pour out from his own place of drought. Psalm 77. He writes, and this is a Psalm of Asaph. He writes, my voice rises to God, I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. Of course, he says this almost hoping against hope. You know, have you ever done that? You're praying and you say, I know he'll hear me, but you're not feeling it, but you pray it. He says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. I remember God, and then I'm disturbed. I sigh, then my spirit grows faint, and then he puts in a selah, so you can think about the fact, this guy's depressed. (laughs) You've held my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart. My spirit ponders, but then he slides back into depression. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And there's another Selah, which leaves us a moment to say, wait a minute. Is that even possible that God could be faithless? If you've ever asked yourself that, he continues. Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the most high has changed. In other words, it's my grief that's causing me to think this way. It's my grief that considers that God may have changed, that God may be unfaithful. It's my grief getting in the way. It's my drought, we might say. And then he says this, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders, not in his own life, but of old, he says, I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You've, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And there's a pause here, and suddenly this guy is singing praise. Praise. He says, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, the whole idea here is I'm gonna remember what God did and he's drawing on a memory, Asaph is, that is not his, it's not his memory. He didn't go through the Red Sea, he didn't experience these things, but his people did. The word of God declares it, so I'm gonna remember that, memorial stones. I'm gonna think on that in my drought and when the river is low, the rocks are still there And they remind us of who God is and what he's done. So in verse 12, continuing, it says, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and I was told since last week that calling it half-Manasseh probably isn't the best idea. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel just as Moses had spoken to them. Great, they're keeping their word. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. All right, bros, they're all in. No, they're not. They're not all in. In Numbers 26, at the final numbering, They're on the borders of the promised land, the final numbering of the people. Actually, I I believe at this point they're on the plains of Moab. Numbers 26, you can add this up. If you add up the fighting men, so men 20 years old and up in the tribe of Reuben, the fighting men in the tribe of Gad, and if you just take half of the fighting men of the tribe of Manasseh, you come out with 110,580 men able to go to war and only 40,000 crossed. What's going on here? Why, why are, where are the other 70,580? Why are they not crossing with their brothers and, and, and keeping the promise to Moses? Well, it, it makes absolute sense. They couldn't leave their wives and children unprotected. Couldn't leave their flocks and herds unguarded. Of course, there would have to be men left behind, especially in that day and age, to look after their families and their flocks and their holdings on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And that is the problem with not crossing the Jordan. You got something on the other side you got to take care of. You have something that's pulling you backward rather than forward. And I'll put it to you this way. My opinion, you either go all in or you're not really in at all. And that's the call of God on our lives. This has been the challenge of me for me throughout my life. And it continues to be. Cheryl and I got home from church on Sunday and we were talking a little bit about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what the Bible says about it and our shared experiences together with the Lord and, and in our life. And, and she said, I don't know, Rick, sometimes I, I, I wonder. And I'm like, you wonder what? Can I share this? It's about me, it's not about you. But but Cheryl said, Will you, you, you're gonna love this. She goes, Will you preach this? Do you always believe it? See, because I'm going off, I'm I'm in pastor mode. I'm going off on, oh, I hope everybody got this because it's so important. They need this in their lives. She's like, Do you? Because there are times that, there are times I'm not sure you believe in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're driving in the car, I'm like hitting the brake. How dare you impugn my righteousness woman you know no. i i loved it i loved it because you know what and this we all need this in our lives we need someone to challenge our own faith and she did and i really began thinking am i all in am i all in or am i mostly in except i've got a little theology that's still on the other side or I'm mostly in, but except when it comes to this issue or that problem or this area of my own personal control that I'm really not ready to give up yet. Am I all in? Because if I'm not all in, I'm not really in at all. And that's the problem with Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh. If we want to live, and I'm speaking to me right now as much as to you, you take it if you want to, but this is all for me. If I wanna live the victorious Christian life, the invitation of the Spirit of God is all in. Trust me, implicitly. Rick, you can't leave anything behind. You either kill it or you bring it. If it's sin, kill it. If it's the old man, the old self, the old ways, that needs to die. Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So sin is dead. In fact, sin should have been done away with at the Red Sea, even before we hit the wilderness. And then we come to the Jordan, and and, and as we're crossing here, sin should not be the issue. I'm not saying we're flawless and perfect. We are being perfected, I get that. But our attitude should be attitudes of practicing righteousness. All in for holiness, all in for Jesus and not content with that old life. Kill it off, kill it dead. But then when you cross into the promise, you bring family with you, you bring flocks with you, you come into the promised land and that's where you plant and tend and shepherd and live. In the promised land. You don't have holdings on the Eastern shore. You bring it with you. Remember what Jesus told Peter in John chapter 21? He said, Peter, do you love me? I really like you, Jesus. Okay, feed my lambs. Where, back there or right here in the land of promise? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? I like you a lot, Jesus. Great, tend or pasture my sheep. Do you like me, Peter? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Peter might say, yes, I like you, Lord. Great, then shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Tend my flocks, where, Lord? Here, here in the land, in the promise. Feed them on the promise. Encourage one another with the promise. Leave nothing behind. Reuben Gad and half Manasseh are a picture of this man. Kill off the old self and consecrate everything else that you bring with you, that it all belong to the Lord. Verse 14, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Where did the Lord exalt Joshua? In the Jordan River crossing. How did the Lord exalt Yehoshua, Jesus? Matthew 3:16. after being baptized, he came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Yehoshua is exalted and Joshua exalted in the same place at the same Jordan River. Verse 15, now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So this is all fluid, <laughs> no pun intended, but it's all happening here, right? It's all taking place. Now tell the priest to come on out. So Joshua commanded the priest saying, come up from the Jordan. It came about that when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan that the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place. And note this, and went over all its banks as before, it is right back to flood stage. How awesome. They come out of it and suddenly here it comes, rushing and gurgling and splashing and flowing and they look back and I can see that last priest going, whoa, that was close. It's exactly what God said he would do. And this mighty Jordan now is flowing again. Did you know that it mentioned Well, read verse 19, we didn't read this yet. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. On the 10th of the first month. Do you know what that is? This is exactly 40 days to the day that God established Passover. On the 10th of the first month. First month is Nisan. Nissan. On the civic calendar, it's the seventh month of the civic year because their month, you know, the civic year is about to start with Rosh Hashanah this, this Sunday night into Monday of this year. That begins the civic calendar, and that, that means this would be the first month. Tishri would be the first month. But on the religious calendar, God's calendar, Nisan, in the springtime, that is the first of the year. That's the first month. And on the 10th of Nisan, God established the Passover Exodus chapter 12, verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the side of Egypt or in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of the month, they are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. If the household is too small for a lamb, he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you're to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight or between the two settings of the sun. On the 10th, Passover is established. Now it's the 10th, the same exact day that the lambs were to be selected. On the 14th, the lambs then were to be slaughtered and that is Pesach, that's the beginning of of the seven day feast that, that continues with the feast of unleavened bread. 1500 years after this, so 40 years to the day, on the 10th, they are now in the land, they are now in the place of promise, right as when God said, select a lamb. 1,500 years later, on the 10th of the first month, Nisan, our Yehoshua mounted a donkey on the Mount of Olives and rode down and across the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem, presenting himself as the spotless lamb to the nation of Israel. On the 14th of the first month, Christ our Passover was crucified the connections and the ties and the, and the intentionality of God is just awesome. I mean, praise him for the way he's done this. Jesus, our Yehoshua, is the rock to remember, amen? Verse 20, those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, more on Gilgal in a minute. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, and he's repeating this now, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever, and you might wanna note this in your Bibles, especially brothers, listen closely. He says, when your children ask their fathers. This is on the dads. And dads are playing second fiddle in this culture. We were down at the soccer fields the other day, and I was just noticing, and, and I, I have respect, do respect here, but I was noticing all the young soccer teams, my grandkids are, are playing soccer now, so we're down there watching a soccer game, and, and it just kind of hit me, and I thought it was interesting. They're all female coaches. All of them. And I'm sure they're good. So again, n- n- no, no casting aspersion on female coaches. I'm not trying to go there. But I'm like, where are the dads? Where are the dads, you know, as I'm sitting on my chair? <laughs> where are the dads anyway? Come on, guys, get out there. I'm 58 years old. I've done my bit for Kith and Ken. No, I, where are the dads at? When your children ask their fathers, Proverbs 22, verse six tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I believe the proverb writer, Solomon was talking to dads. Doesn't mean moms aren't responsible too. And especially if there's a single parent situation, mom, you train that child up in the ways of the Lord. But where are the dads? Note this, Mark chapter 10, verse 13. This may be a little shift for you. They were bringing their children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Who were bringing the little ones to Jesus? I don't know if this has been your assumption, but don't you kinda see the mommies doing it? Of course they would. Touch my little one, touch my baby, kiss the baby. You just have the sense moms are bringing their kids to Jesus, right? Well, of course they would, they're the one. It wasn't mothers. It was fathers. How do you know that? Because the them, the pronoun them, used correctly here. In Mark 10, 13, and I love this about the Greek pronouns. The Greek pronouns are masculine and feminine, so you know who we're talking about. I would that we had masculine and feminine pronouns in our, in our country, and them, could, we could know what we're talking about. It's autois. Autois in the Greek means it's, it's the masculine form. The them were men. The men were bringing the little ones to Jesus for him to touch them and bless them. Why? Because that's what Jewish fathers did. That's what a Jewish father's responsibility, the father taught the children. It was at least supposed to be that way. It was in ancient Judaism. The fathers are bringing now their children to Jesus. It's not the soccer moms. It's the dads. And again, ladies, ladies, We'll talk sometime. I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skittish about telling the ladies to do anything, but the guys, I can talk to you. Our call as dads is to raise our children to know Jesus, and it's convicting to me as a father second time around. Am I taking the time? Am I leading my, am I bringing my sons and daughters to Jesus? Number two, if, if you're keeping track of this, and yeah, we're only at number two, but that's cool. Number one was rocks of remembrance, number two here is the responsibility of fathers. Keep going with this thought, pick it up in verse one of chapter five. Now it came about when the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. We already know from Rahab the harlot that their hearts were melting. We already know all the Canaanites in the land, they're terrified of this mass of people on the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan. But you know what? Now they have witnessed waters heaped up and the people just storming across in mass. And now They're terrified. In fact, the phrase that's added to this, and I love it, is that there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. It's like they immediately all became rubber chickens, nothing on the inside. Just, they are freaking out. Canaanite morale at this moment is at rock bottom. They're gutless, they're spiritless, and they are fearful. At least when the Jordan River was flowing, there was something to keep those Israelites on the other side. At least we have time right now to plan, coordinate, to muster forces, to call together the other kings and see, see if we can prepare. for. And all of a sudden, the water stops, and here they come. And they were not ready for this. They thought at least we have flood stage to protect us a little bit longer. And God heaps up the waters high, and here comes Israel. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not a military strategist, but I'm thinking now's the time to strike. Now is when you hit them, when they're afraid, when they're fearful, when they're crumbling. Verse two says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make yourself flint knives. Yes, Lord, let's get some weapons ready and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. <laughs> what? Verse three, so Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeat Ha'aralot. Gibeat Ha'aralot means foreskin hill. I kid you not. That's what it means. Hill of the foreskins. Because every one of the men of Israel now needed to be circumcised. This is just, it's so graphic. And by the way, that was the day that Oive was invented. <laughs> I'm certain of it. Flint knives, wait a minute. Okay, Israel's into the Bronze Age. We already know that they've got metal. We already know that they've got spears and, and shields. And, and we know that Egypt had chariot wheels. And we know there, there's metal out there. And, and it's being fashioned into weaponry. Why flint knives? And, and literally, it's probably obsidian. Obsidian stone is probably what we're talking about here. That could be, it could be fashioned very sharp. But, but why, why stone? Because stone would be sterile. So you see God's wisdom in the handling of his sons here and in the circumcision, make flint knives. Don't don't use your metal stuff because that can actually uh, bear microorganisms. Stone's not going to. Obsidian uh, obsidian stone wouldn't, it's sterile. And he says, do this the second time. Do this again. Now, it doesn't mean that they're being recircumcised. That would be brutal. This means... That the process for the sons of Israel has to be repeated because not one man of this generation had been circumcised. It's been 38 years. Why were they not circumcised? Hold that thought to circumcise all of these fighting men, they've just come across, now's the time to strike, now's the time to take out the Canaanites to go after Jericho. Man, when they're scared to death, no, pause and circumcise. What does that mean? You've just incapacitated your entire army. They're not gonna be able to fight. And by the way, if Jericho knew this, if the Canaanites knew this, all they needed to do was wait until the circumcisions were over and come flooding in, because those guys were not gonna be ready to fight. There's an old story that that, that shows us this, that that elevates the seriousness of this. If you look back to Genesis 34, and I don't have time to do it tonight, but do you remember when Simeon, Shimon, and Levi, when they told all the men of Shechem? See, Shechem loved Dinah, their sister. Shechem actually raped Dinah, their sister. Shechem then came and said, I I wanna marry Dinah. And, and, And when Shimon and Levi heard this, they said, well, here's the deal. Uh, we can't marry your daughters, you can't marry our sister, you know. But if you were circumcised like us, then, you know, we'd be mano y mano and that'd be great. Then you could marry in, and we could, and we could all be friends. So all the men of Shechem got circumcised, and while they were in the midst of their healing process, Simeon and Levi went in and killed every one of them. And there was very little they could do, as they're in their own pain in time of healing. So we know this is a, 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 a very vulnerable thing to do. And before going right into warfare, God says, I, I need you to be vulnerable for about you know a week. Week to 10 days, and, and then we'll talk battle. Amazing, why does God do it now? Why would he have them? So why not do it back on the other side? Let them heal up stop the Jordan River, and then come across. Why here? Why now? Listen, all the way back in chapter one, verse eight, we have the answer. God says to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And Joshua and the sons of Israel needed to understand it was not until they were in complete alignment and obedience with the Lord that they could have success. They had to do what the Lord had commanded. They had to be sons of obedience because before they could be sons of of warfare. It's consecration before conquest. It's circumcision before combat. And I think it still is today. We talked about sanctification a bit on Sunday and about this whole idea, even last week, about consecrating ourselves, about pursuing and seeking holy lives before we go fight. You will wonder why you lose fights in spiritual warfare? It's probably because we're not consecrated. We're, we're, we wanna fight before we obey. God says, no, obey before you fight. And so he calls them into this. He is not kidding around with his word. And in verse four, continuing on, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Verse six. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Why? Because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. To whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Note this, their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised. They had not circumcised them along. The way, whose fault is it that all these men are uncircumcised? Dad, this is now on the fathers. The responsibility of the father was to circumcise the son, and none of the fathers had circumcised their sons of that entire generation. They were disobedient now now listen, this is kind of expands a thought that i've that i 've had before it 's much bigger now. this is not. They were not just faithless because they refused to enter the promised land. Their rebellion was not just at Kadesh Barnea. Their rebellion was on multiple fronts. It says in verse six again, because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. That is, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord saying, go into the land and take it. And they did not listen to the voice of the Lord saying, circumcise your sons. And they did not listen to the voice of the Lord saying, keep Passover. You'll see that in just a moment. Their rebellion was broad spread in their lives. I really wonder if at any point in the wilderness, these men, these fathers stopped and listened and obeyed if the 40 years would have ended instantly. A year in, two years in, five years in, if the men of Israel stood up and said, Lord, we repent. We will obey you and immediately circumcised all their sons and immediately restarted Passover and immediately began to obey the Lord. What would God have done? See, the Lord loves obedience. Disobedience is never a localized problem. Disobedience is never just Kadesh Barnea. Disobedience is always spread and bred. If you're disobedient in one area, you will be disobedient in another because rebellion always bleeds over into multiple areas of our lives. So if someone says, I don't know, I've, I've got a problem with cussing, that's not your only problem. That's a symptom. But I'm thinking maybe there's something else, somewhere else going on as well. If someone, if a man has a problem with pornography, guess what, pornography is not the only problem. Because rebellion bleeds. And it's not just one thing, it's multiple things. And we see this in the men of Israel. First Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, in a stinging rebuke, which is another story for another time, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. See, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Samuel says to Saul, it's obeying the voice of the Lord that matters. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And then he says this, listen, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and insubordination is iniquity and idolatry. Samuel describes it right there, sin is the source, but it has multiple outcroppings in your life. Rebellion is never limited to one thing. James chapter one, verse 14 says, each one when he's tempted is carried away and enticed by his own lust, and then lust is conceived, and it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sounds a lot like cancer. If it's localized, you can get it, but it rarely stays localized. It will spread. My dad, by the way, is a a two-times cancer survivor since COVID. He had prostate cancer through a year of treatment, cured, gone, completely healed, and then he had this nodular melanoma that showed up on the top of his head. Nodular meaning it goes straight into the brain. Highly dangerous. When they find this, it's like, and they were talking massive surgery that would completely have disfigured his head and face. And one doctor at the UCI Medical Center, and, and by the way, this nodular melanoma, he, he noticed it because it had that spot, but, but there was, on the side of his face, there were like blemishes appearing. And when he went to the doctor, they discovered that not only was it here, but was, it was in these blemishes and it was in his lymph node. And it looked like that's it. And we got the phone call and we're like, okay, we're gonna pray. A UCI Medical Center doctor said, You know, before you, you cut him all up, why don't we try immunotherapy? So they tried immunotherapy, and he went in every three weeks for this immunotherapy, and at the end of nine months, it's gone. He's absolutely cancer free. Praise the Lord. Don't tell me there's not a supernatural God. But the point is this that's incredibly rare. Look at how it spread, and typically when it spreads like that, you're done, and that's sin, and that's rebellion. So what does the Father do about this? Verse eight, now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places, I like this, in the camp until they were healed. Sometimes that's what you need to do. Sometimes you need to remain until you're healed. From time to time, we'll tell people this when they come to the bridge for the first time and say, ah, I wanna get involved in ministry but I have learned in hearing their story that they came out of a rough spot. Why don't you just sit and be healed first? Why don't you wait until the Lord heals you? Sometimes the Lord does not want to move in your life yet because there's healing that first needs to take place. So they remained in their places in the camp there at Gilgal until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, verse nine, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Why? Gilgal means rolled away. So this is point number three. God says, I'm rolling away the reproach. I'm rolling away the reproach. Why today? Because today they're circumcised young men. Today they have kept the covenant. And guess where they've kept the covenant? In the promised land. You have kept the covenant in the promised land. Guess what? I've just rolled away the reproach. What exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean that God rolled away the dishonor of their bondage. The reproach of Egypt, we read that, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt and we might just immediately assume, oh, the reproach of Egypt, well, that's slavery, right? No, it's not what he's talking about. The reproach of Egypt was the disparaging comments of the Egyptians against the Israelites as they left. See, that word reproach used in other, in other areas speaks of slander, so it's not their slavery, it's the slander of the Egyptians who either thought or they said out loud, the Israelites are gonna die in the wilderness. That's the reproach of Egypt. Similar even today to the reproach of the world. In Deuteronomy 9:27, Moses said, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and do not look at the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us, Egypt, may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which He promised them, and because He hated them, He's brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. That's the reproach of Egypt. And God says, I've rolled it away. It's gone. Why? Because you have kept covenant in the promised land. You're here. And the covenant I started with Abraham 400 years ago is taking place right here, right now. The reproach is they can't say anything, they can't disparage Israel because they're in the land and they have kept the covenant. For you, for me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe, glorify God in the day of his visitation. Do you know what that means? That means if you will stand for the truth in this world here and now, and you will do it with love, that when Christ comes again, the world will at that time recognize their slander against you and that they were wrong. And so that's, the, that's the same thing going on here. So the covenant is of circumcision it's restored. The reproach of Egypt is rolled away. And during this time of healing, there's something else God does. Another ignored law is remembered and observed. Number four in your list, restoring redemption. Restoring redemption. Number three was rolling away reproach. Number two was the responsibility of the fathers. Number one was the rocks of remembrance, okay? Number four, restoring redemption, verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, the place of rolling away, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. So now four days have gone by, they're at Gilgal, they're healing from circumcision, and they keep Passover. Guess what the fathers also had not done for 38 years? they had not kept Passover. It had been on hold. In fact, according to the scriptures, this is only the third time since Egypt that Passover is celebrated, even though 40 years have gone by. First time was the night before they're leaving, right? Very first Passover, uh, Exodus chapter 12. Second time was at Mount Sinai, they celebrated Passover again. But upon leaving Sinai, and coming to the edge of the Promised Land, and then the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, For 38 years, as God led them around by the nose in the wilderness to try to train them and teach them, they never kept Passover once. This is number three. And it's in the promised land. And it's four days into the first month. Israelite rebellion affected more than simply the conquest of Canaan. Their rebellion affected everything. Now, someone might say, Okay, they didn't keep Passover, but, what, but Moses was with them. Wouldn't Moses have made sure that they kept Passover for those 38 years up until this point? Well, here's the thing. It looks like, in my assumption, it was suspended because of their rebellion. And the picture that we get on this side of the wilderness journey and all of that generation of men dying off, so you're talking... Tens of thousands of funerals, of burials throughout this 38 years. And that generation dying off, that generation remained rebellious of heart the entire time. And so you don't share Passover in rebellion. So, you know, they didn't want to keep it. It looks like Moses suspended it. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 tells us something about the Lord. And I love this verse the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, implied of generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, visiting every generation. That's what he's saying. It doesn't, doesn't mean that the Lord is gonna blame those generations. He's visiting the third and the fourth. He comes to every generation and he asks the same question. Are you gonna follow the fathers or are you gonna follow me? Are you gonna continue in their rebellion or are you gonna repent and turn to me? And every generation, millennials, gen Zers, the new alpha generation, every generation, God returns and says, will you follow me? And he has since this time, and now God is visiting Israel to restore their redemption in this generation. Verse 11, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. We have another crossover here, because in verse 12, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Isn't that beautiful? You come into the promise, you know what you don't need anymore? You don't need bits of manna. You need to feed on the promises. And as followers of Jesus, too many Christians are still feeding on manna from the wilderness, little bits and pieces, when they can devour all the promises of God. We have all of the promises. Every promise of his word is yours to feed upon and devour and to to digest as you ingest it and, and, and are changed and strengthened by it. We have it all. Don't be satisfied with manna from the wilderness. Now, as Gilgal was highly significant to the Israelites, it became too significant. Sadly, Gilgal, this this place where all these wonderful things happened in the first camp in the land and the first, you know, the circumcision, restoring the covenant, and then the the Passover restored and all these good things happened and and even the manna stopped and they start to eat of the land and all the promises are being fulfilled. It's marvelous, it's wonderful, and Gilgal became a city of idolatry. Hosea chapter 12, verse two says, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrificed bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field and, and the, the condemnation that comes throughout Hosea and several of the other prophets is Gilgal is now the sacrifice of idolatry is happening there. Bulls are being sacrificed there instead of at the temple in Jerusalem where they're supposed to be. And so it becomes an idolatrous location and I, 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 I just point that out to remind you all, don't Make the monument your worship. Don't We say this every time we go to Israel. We don't worship stones and bones. We worship a living God. He is not the God of the dead, Jesus said. He's the God of the living. We worship him. We don't worship this building as a monument to what he's done. We don't worship the barn as a monument from whence we've come. We worship Jesus. Our eyes are on Jesus, and not even on the memorial stones in our lives the things that we've set up to help us remember him, don't let those things get in the way and become the remembrance. We go through Israel and there are churches everywhere. Beautiful, ornate, Italian-designed churches. And we'll go into some of them and go, well, look at the architecture. I would much rather be on a boat on the Sea of Galilee I would much rather be walking through the Valley of the Doves where Jesus walked. I would much rather just be walking the streets of Jerusalem and thinking about Jesus and focusing on Jesus. Don't worship the monuments. Don't even worship the supernatural event itself. It's not the Jordan River that was impressive. It's not the crossing. It's Yahweh who was to be worshiped in that. I think about what Jesus said. Speaking of remembrance stones, all the way back in, in Luke chapter 19, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, and he said, wait, I'm in the wrong place. No, as he, was, as he was ascending, so right before this, he's approaching the descent of the Mount of Olives, the crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples, and Jesus said, do you remember this? I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So let's not let the rocks of remembrance be the focus of our faith. Now let's focus on the rock, Jesus Christ. All eyes on Jesus. And speaking of the Lord, back in Joshua 5, verse 13, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. Oh, I love this. Behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Okay, it wasn't a yes, no question. <laughs> it was my side or your. no. It's, the answer was a neither. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord, And Joshua fell down on his face to the earth and bowed down to him and said, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And this is awesome. Number five in your notes. Last one, recognizing the ruler. Recognizing the ruler. Captain of the Lord's host. The word captain in Hebrew is sar, sar. And it means it's translated, mostly translated prince. Sometimes translated general, chief, ruler, or captain but it speaks of one who has absolute authoritative representation. And here comes the captain, the the one in complete authority to represent Yahweh. Here comes the prince. Here comes the ruler, and he's standing there with sword drawn before Joshua near Jericho. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no. Because the right question is not, are you for me? The right question is, Am I for you? Am I for you? Am I for you? Joshua finds himself face to face with Joshua. Jehoshua is standing there looking at Yehoshua. This, this is called a Christophany. Some say a theophany, and that is a theophany is a physical appearance of God. Well, I call it a Christophany because we know in the Bible every physical appearance of God, that's Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the the exact representation of his being. That's Jesus. And this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, okay, how do we know that? For sure, it's very simple. First of all, Joshua's worship is a hint. This cannot be an angel because Joshua falls down and worships him and no angel is allowed to accept worship. We see that in Revelation chapter 19 where John wants to worship the angel. I bowed down to worship and he said, whoa, don't do that. It's a loose translation, but something like that. Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Don't worship me. So no angel is worshiped. And Joshua also, he calls this this sar, this prince, this, this captain, he calls him Lord Adonai. What has Adonai to say to his servant? We're far along the line in the history of Israel. Joshua knows who he's talking about when he says Adonai. He says, Lord. And in verse 15, watch this. The captain of the Lord's host, the Tsar of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> there at the burning bush, when the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, do not come near here, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Exodus, Exodus three thirteen, and then in verse 14, remember God said to Moses, I am who I am, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. I, he names himself Yahweh right then and there. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Which is why I say, if you're seeing an Old Testament, if you will, appearance of Jesus, appearance of God, that's Jesus. He's the one who explains God. He is the radiance again of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And so here fittingly, Jesus. Yehoshua appears to Yehoshua. Jesus is the Tsar, captain of the Lord's host. Interesting, he's the captain of the Lord's host. And what were the angels called who showed up at the birth of Jesus? Luke chapter two, verse 13, a multitude of the heavenly host, the angel army. They were there at his birth. He is captain of the host. He said in Matthew 26, 53, in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you think I cannot appeal to my fathers? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Why could Jesus do that? He's the Tsar. He's the captain of the host. And with all the authority of God, Jesus commands the host of the Lord. Do you recognize that authority over your life? I talked earlier about being all in or I'm not in at all. Well, if I'm all in, it's because Jesus is my Lord. He is the prince of my life. He is the chief, the captain. He's in charge of everything. I gotta follow him. And I love how personal this is for Joshua. When Jesus shows up, Joshua, he sees him as as the commander. I mean, go back further to Abraham, who was a sojourner, In Genesis chapter 18, God shows up, the Christophany of God. Jesus shows up as what? As a sojourner. Just like Abraham, as a traveler. To Jacob, Genesis 32, Jacob, that scrappy fighter, Jesus shows up as a wrestler. It's what Jacob needed. To Moses, who was at the time a shepherd of Midian, Jesus met him there in a burning desert shrub. And here, Well here it's the eve of battle. Joshua's about to go to war. Now Joshua had led the children of Israel in war before but never against a fortified city. He'd led them in open campaign in the midst of a valley against the Amalekites and against other kings. He had met other and led other fights but never ever in his life had he had this kind of battle before him. Uphill, double walled, how am I gonna get in here? So Joshua's out there, and no doubt he's looking at Jericho. That's where he is, and he's looking on it and pondering the battle before him. How do you take a fortified city? And Jesus shows up, captain of armies. This is incredibly personal. It is exactly who Joshua needed to see in that moment. And by the way, it's no friendly meeting. This is is a meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff with the commander-in-chief, This is a military strategy summit for the upcoming war and chapter six is going to get into that and guess what, the battle belongs to him. And we're gonna check that out on Sunday morning. Rocks of remembrance, responsibility of fathers, the rolling away of reproach, the restoring of redemption and recognizing the ruler and that takes us through chapters four and five. Can I blow your minds real quickly before we leave? One final thing, something to consider. Turn in your Bibles over to the book of Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14, turn there. We won't go back to Joshua tonight. We'll end here. Zechariah 14 is the very end of the Hebrew scriptures, right before, right before Malachi, the Italian prophet. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14 in your Bibles, I'll begin in verse one, watch this, check this out. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, for Yahweh, when the spoil taken from you, Israel, will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses will be plundered, and the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in or on a day of battle. But that's, that's not the best translation. Verse three is literally as in his day of fighting. It's, it's the Nafal uh, verb form that, that doesn't matter. But in the Hebrew, it really speaks with a past tense sense to it. So it is the Lord in that day will go forth and fight against those nations as when, as in his day of fighting. So when was his day of fighting? Brothers and sisters, the implication is that the example of his fighting has already been given, that we have seen the day of his fighting and he's going to fight like that when this happens in a day not far from now. This example is of a time when Jesus himself fought in the Jordan River Valley, as he will here in the Valley of Megiddo in that that Jordan Rift Valley. When in history did Jesus ever fight in the Jordan Rift Valley? And there's one possibility, and it's Jericho. It's Jericho. This is the fight of the Lord. Zechariah is prophesying of Jesus' second coming and the fight in the Valley of Megiddo. And he says, that's gonna be like this. And Jericho is soon gonna know that strength of the Lord. And so will Jerusalem and so will all the ends of the earth when this takes place. But Zechariah continues and says, in that day his feet, the feet of Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so half of the mountain will move toward the south and half of the mountain will move toward the north. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you'll flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And when we come with him, it's gonna be an awful lot like Jericho. We're just going to come riding in silently and the walls are going to be down before we even set foot and the Lord will win the battle as he's about to in Jericho. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for all that you teach us and, and how you encourage us and Lord, how you convict and challenge us with such grace and such loving kindness. I am so thankful, Lord, that you came to my generation and asked the question, I'm thankful you came to my children's generation and now to my children's children's generation. You keep on coming and you keep inviting us to be all in. And my prayer, Father, is that we would be a people who are all in. And this is something truly, Lord, we can't accomplish without the supernatural hand of your spirit upon us. And so I pray, Spirit of the living God, convict us, change us, fill us, and come upon us to be the fighters you need us to be in these last days. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.